The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. I don't, I don't want to assume a negative. Uh, at the same time, I, I hope you don't become weary of longer scripture readings that we're doing here at the beginning of this calendar year and, and epiphany. There's some very particular reasons why we're doing them. And um, I, know, I know that uh, we, we approach things a little differently in our worship service than a lot of churches do. And that's, you know, good for them and hopefully good for us because uh, not only does Paul uh, instruct the church to uh, read the scriptures publicly, uh, but to, to read the scriptures uh, so that they make sense, which often means you can't just kind of pick and choose little parts of scripture. You've got to get the, the gist of the whole story. And um, to be encouraged to read uh, chapter 35 of Isaiah, because again, probably uh, unless you read it during your attempt to read the Bible through, you know, in the year, you might not uh, be very familiar uh, with Isaiah 35. But it is a tremendous passage in this series of songs of rejoicing. We find songs for the ransom. For the wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing the glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with a recompense, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. And the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. And the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, a way. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for those, the wayfaring men, though fools shall not err therein. No lions shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go up thereon. It shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return. And come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. And they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow. And sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord and it is for our good. Let me pray. Father, I I pray along with Isaiah, drop down ye heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness and let the earth open And let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together for you, the Lord, have created it. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart 
Be acceptable, O Lord, in your sight, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. So in this epiphany season, we are focusing on songs of rejoicing from Isaiah for two reasons. And I hope these reasons not only are kind of self-evident, but also we really get them ingrained into you. The first is to remind us that although we live in very dark times and desperate times spiritually in a time when our nation is, is hurled headlong into the abyss of forsaking God, uh, the church can still rejoice. And we don't rejoice over that, but we can rejoice. Because the world has gone mad, because our nation has gone mad, uh, running after every God conceivable, the church can still have rejoicing. For the gospel tells us that this thrice holy God is for us. Is for us. He is not against us. And of course that would have been very important for Isaiah. He is writing to a people who are being driven out of their land and into captivity. It would have been hard for them to live with hope believing that God was for them when they were being taken away. Uh, The second reason, and this I want to press to our hearts this morning especially, is that, uh, and for many of us, with a rather long lifetime, you know, uh, history with Christianity, uh, many of us live with what we might call a knowledge-based faith, and not so much an experiential-based faith. That is, if you, like me, were, were raised in a church where you know, memorize the book of the Bibles, you memorize the Ten Commandments, you memorize key verses in the Bible, maybe the Romans wrote, certainly the books of the Bible, because when there was a Bible drill, you needed to win the Bible drill to get the prize. Uh, so candy was always very important. Um, you, you accumulated knowledge. But often that knowledge didn't really find its way fully into your heart and into the experiences of life. And so in this epiphany season, one of the things that I hope to do is to uh, press into us, out of Isaiah, the experience of faith. That again, a people who are being driven out and into captivity because of their sins uh, would need to know that God was for them experientially, not just cognitively. Yeah, I know that verse. Well, they wouldn't have quoted it, but we would quote it, right? Romans 8, if God is for us. See, there you go. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that often we have that response, but are we experiencing that that response? And so as important as knowledge is, and knowledge is important, to know in an experiential way that God is for us deepens then our understanding of the gospel promise that through a redeemer we have been ransomed by God. This is why we're reading Ruth Finishing our reading from Ephesians, we want to see that and experience redemption so that it opens up more broadly an understanding of the redemption we have in Jesus Christ that we then experience in our lives that we are free people defined not by religion but defined by relationship as Paul would say we are in Christ. We are in Christ. We are in 
Christ. And so these two words that show up at the end of Isaiah 35, the word redeemed and the word ransom, take a prominent place. Redeemed, there in verse number 9, appears for the first time here in Isaiah's prophecy, essentially the, the midpoint or thereabouts of his prophecy. But from this point forward, he will use it another 24 times. Now, I didn't put this in my sermon notes, but I'm compelled to say it because I know some of you will go, oh, wait, let me Google that and make sure he's right. And you'll say, oh, wait, I see the word redeemed before this. But redeemed and ransomed are part of a word group, and they mean similar things, but not the same thing. And so redeemed, as it is meant by Isaiah here, the, to have a right, not a duty, but a right, a right which Motir in his commentary says, no one would dare usurp. This is what we're going to learn from Ruth. Boaz is the next closest relative. Therefore, he has a right, not just a duty. No one can usurp his right. He has to take action as the one who redeems Ruth. And so this word redeemed becomes very important in giving hope in an experiential way to the readers of Isaiah's prophecy. But the second word that just follows on its heels is the word ransomed. And that word ransom is used to remind Israel that the living God has paid the price required to redeem them. And that word ransom is from the very beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. This is the way it works, that little bits of hope are woven into an otherwise powerful letter of judgment against Israel because of their sins. And so we have this knowledge of what God is doing, but we need to let that knowledge get deeply into our hearts in an experiential way that we have been redeemed because Christ has paid the ransom. Right? Christ has paid the ransom. If you um, shop at the Walmart on Quaker Road um, and you go through the self-checkout, often you might see Cora Wells. And if you walk out without first having redeemed the item through paying the ransom, Cora will stop you and say, why are you stealing? <laughs> Maybe she wouldn't say it just like that. You have to go back and you have to redeem this item by putting money into that machine, right? Now you've ransomed it by your, the price of the payment. And thus is the larger meaning of this word group that God in Christ has bought us out of the slave market of sin, the price being the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we are reading the story of Ruth. We're reading Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus by whole chapter because both books speak about God, the Redeemer, who exercises his right to deliver his chosen people from their bondage. And as Redeemer, he has paid the price required for his people to be Delivered, And all of this is accomplished through Jesus Christ, the crucified one, risen, who then gives us life through his life. So, uh, again, for most of us, that's rehearsing information we know. It's good news. But have you thought about it also as difficult news? And it becomes difficult because of what it imposes upon us. The difficulty is found then in living as though 
the way that life is done kind of in our world at present is passing away. But all too often the church, Christians especially in the church, are really kind of stuck in the way that the world does life. That the way our region does life. You know, we often talk about, um, or maybe we, ought, we don't do it often enough, we should do it more often, what has to be given up, say, in a Muslim country for someone to be a Christian. That, you know, threat of death. They, they really have to give up. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm finding that more and more in our, in our modern Western world, what people have to give up may not be death, but, man, they have to give up a lot. All the activities they want their kids to be involved in if they're going to make a commitment to coming to church on Sunday. They might have to give up material possessions if they're going to become faithful in uh, financial stewardship to the church, let's say. They might have to give up that greatest commodity of all time on a Sunday to come to church. And that's like death to them. You know, I, I'm, I'm in a friendship developing with a, a guy in, in my exercise group and it's just a wonderful man, hardworking, has a lovely family. And I just think to myself, what would be required for him to become a Christian and for his family to become a Christian would be an entire upheaval of their lives that I'm quite certain he would feel no need to do. And I wonder in the church, you know, have we not been drawn into some of that as well, that we don't really feel uh, the need for redemption and ransom. We're just kind of doing life the way it's being done in this passing world because we forget that the world indeed is passing. But so often the church lives as the way life is being done on earth is permanent and not passing. For first world people who live sort of comfortable, right, middle class lives, there's little felt need for redemption. Don't we? We come and go as we please, don't we? We have the conveniences and necessities of life. And, and I, you know, I, I drive around and the hundreds of new storage units built every year throughout our little region here, kind of a testimony that we have all of the conveniences and necessities of life, plus, like, you know, plus, because we don't have room for them. So how would we feel our need for redemption? But if we were to place ourselves back into the time in which Isaiah is writing, we would have a better appreciation for what it means to be ransomed by a redeemer. If we could, we could walk in, in, in Naomi, in, in, in the shoes of Naomi and Ruth, we might feel that greater sense of need for, for a redeemer. And how emotionally powerful would it be for us to say, as one of the songs of Isaiah says, for our sorrow and our sighing to be fleeing away, to be taken away. And, you know, quite honestly, and I, this is true of me, you know, I raise my hand here too often, you know, my sorrow and signs are more about the loss of convenience than the loss of God's favor. That God would not look favorably upon me. And I don't feel that to the same extent that I should. 
because I get caught up in the present world and the way the world lives and the way things are done in the world. And I'm like, okay, I'm good to go. But no, I don't feel this as I should perhaps. And so as we ponder the God who is for us and we see ourselves more clearly in the light of who he is and what the living God has done for us in Christ and what the living God has prepared for us, that which is coming, you know, directly at us and cannot be stopped as we ponder those things that we're going to talk about out of here out of Isaiah 35 it will help us then kind of overcome these middle class concerns our stresses over inconveniences or whatever it might be and and as our hearts are ignited again with what God has done in Christ we the redeemed ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ since Jesus has come into our hearts then we can sing with hearts full of rejoicing then these songs of rejoicing. And so we have to ask in Isaiah 35, well, what is coming at us that cannot be stopped? And do we think about life that way, that there is something coming at us and it cannot be stopped? And Isaiah would say it this way, a complete reversal of the curse that God has put on creation when Adam sinned in the garden. A complete reversal is coming at us. An overturning is coming at us. The imagery is breathtaking. It includes a promise that joy is going to return to the natural world that God has made. That was verses 1 through 3. You have the wilderness and the solitary place having gladness and the desert's going to rejoice and blossom as a rose and it's going to blossom abundantly and there's going to be all of this joy and there's going to be all of this singing as God then overturns the curse, the groaning of creation and the natural world now lifted anew is able to sing. And then that joy, of course, comes to humans. Isaiah says it comes to us internally where we have these emotional triggers that often cause us fear and anxiety and cause us worry. Isaiah says, no, be strengthened ye with weak hands and confirm feeble knees and say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Why? Behold, God is going to come with vengeance and God with a recompense. He will come and he will save you. Can you imagine if the threat of being taken away into captivity, losing your home, your family being separated, everything that made sense, now gone, you're being driven away, and somebody says, hey, wait, you don't have to be afraid of that. You don't have to be anxious about that. You don't have to be fearful over that because God is going to come. He's going to come with vengeance. He's going to come, and he is going to deliver. And then can you imagine that there's going to come a time when our Physical bodies are going to be entirely restored. Verse 5, that the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap as a heart, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. I mean, for many of us, <laughs> I was saying down at St. James, because, you know, it's kind of a group, right, that they all, same age, a little bit older than me. Uh, a lot bit older than me in some cases. I say, you know, when we walk now down a street, we have to walk like this. Because we shuffle along, we're going to hit a crack, and you're like, down we go, right? You know, we don't want that, you know. So can you, can some, I mean, some of you are you're okay. You can still leap like a, like a deer. But some of us out here, can you, can you imagine? 
And just like get that, get that imagery in your mind. Isaiah's painting a picture. And imagine in your mind right now you running down the, the road and coming to a brick wall. And instead of like, oh, no, no, I got to walk around it. You, you, you actually leap over it. And I lost a lot of you when I said running down the road. <laughs> I mean, just think of it. What is coming at us that cannot be stopped is the work of God in redemption, the one who has ransomed us has bought us. In our present world, you know, this place of parched ground and thirst and danger, Isaiah says a pool, a, pool, a, a spring flowing is going to take over that parched ground. All that is barren, all that is parched is going to blossom abundantly. I don't know what your temperature gauge said this morning, but when I left to go down to St. James, mine went, you know, like from negative one to negative seven. It got colder as I went down the road, and then it kind of bounced back up. It never got to zero, but it kind of bounced back up. And, I mean, it was cold, but let me remind you, you know, as, as winter deepens, hope is found right in knowing that spring is going to come. Pretty soon, I hope somebody on one of those billboards is going to put up there, you know, spring is X amount of days away. They used to have one at the old Agway there in Fort Edward, and you drive by in January, February. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, we only have however many weeks to go. It's great. But that's what it does, right? As winter deepens, we're reminded that spring is coming. And then when spring comes, and this is what I mean by living differently in the world, each spring should be a foretaste of the cosmic rebirth promised by God in Christ. Not just like saying, oh, I just, I'm so glad winter's over. Oh, it's been so hard. But no, what is spring teaching us? It is teaching us that an eternal spring is coming. And everything that Isaiah envisions is going to indeed take place. And this is good news if we're not entrenched in the way that the world does life. If we're not entrenched in this present world, this is good news that a renewed world is coming. It cannot be stopped. The redeemed people of God will indeed walk on a highway. It is called the highway of holiness. And this hope of reversal is found not just in wishful thinking. It is found in what the living God has done for his people through the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the one who creates streams in the desert. So every desert in your life, in my life, every desert in our church family, every desert in this region, in our nation, will be overrun one day with the fullness of the blessing of Christ and crocuses blooming and roses blooming. The hope is expressed in four words there in verse number three, joy and singing, glory and excellency. He mentioned some specific locations, Lebanon, Caramel, and Sharon. Each one had a particular kind of beauty that existed there. Lebanon, known for its natural fertility. And you might recall, in Solomon's temple, they got timber from Lebanon. In Carmel, there was this rich farming and this cultivation. And in Sharon, uh, the commentators say there's a beauty unmatched and 
in the Song of Songs, in the Song of Solomon, there's this reference to the Rose of Sharon. And so Isaiah is using imagery. He's saying for, for much of Israel in that dry and barren land, they knew there were these beautiful places to the north or to the west or a bit to the east, and they might go there and they might hear about them and they would see a landscape much different than the ones that they lived in. And it's true of us as well. Not just like dreaming of Cypress Gardens down in, you know, Winter Haven, Florida right now on a negative whatever degree day. Like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be down in Key West today, you know? And yeah, 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 it would, you know. But to say that in this parched time, in this barren time in which we live, God is still at work. There are still places where God is working. All is not lost. There is hope. And so Isaiah is trying to draw out this emotional response from his readers, not just a cognitive response. He's telling them there are beautiful places so that when they are moving into captivity, they won't lose sight of the larger work that God is in fact doing. Perhaps Isaiah's drawing his inspiration from Psalm 19 that the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the heavens are showing forth his handiwork. And, and, and why is he saying all of this? He's saying this is because not only is there this world which God is going to restore in all of its beauty, but what this restored world is going to do is reflect something. And, and look at the way Isaiah says it. It's going to reflect the glory of the Lord at the end of verse 2 and the excellency of our God. A different kind of glory is going to exist for all eternity that is going to surpass the natural world. As wonderful as it would be to run down a, uh, you know, run down a path and leap over a stone wall, Isaiah would say, that that's only to reflect then a greater glory that we will feast on and enjoy for all eternity, the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And this is why the church, this is why we have to be a voice of hope in spiritually dark times. We have to keep encouraging one another, strengthening weak hands, confirming feeble knees, fearful hearts. Be strong, be courageous, keep going in your faith both in heart as well as in head, because we are the voice of hope. We have this hope that God is bringing forward, that a renewed cosmos and a renewed people are going to be delivered into eternity by the grace of God. And, you know, I, I thought a lot about this. In, in a time when this, this, this kind of divisive uh, uh, climate change discussion Loud talk is going on, this climate change thing. It's such a hot topic. You know, the church should be at the front and center of that. It, it, yeah, no pun intended. It, it should be at the front and center of that conversation. But unfortunately, the church politicizes it. Oh, that's what those people are doing. That's what they think. Oh, look at that. They just want to ruin this or that. Instead of understanding the theological implications of it. If you're ever talking to somebody who's like, oh, this world, we need to do something because the things are being destroyed. You say, well, you ought to be, be a Christian because Christians are the one who care most about the world and actually believe that the world is going to be completely restored and renewed according to God's grace. But we just 
pass it off. Oh, that's that political nonsense, or they've got an agenda, or whatever. Instead of having a conversation about Isaiah 35 with them, or about Romans 8 with them, or about Psalm 19 with them. Don't fall asleep on this issue. Don't get distracted on this issue when it is such a gospel issue in which we can engage people with. But then you think about, you know, how we are shaped and formed by the God who loves us and cares for us. You know, it's one thing to believe that in the world to come, there will be a glory that fills us. But, you know, we can have that same glory today. We can be filled with the glory of God today. In fact, in fact Paul, would, Paul would say that in Romans 8. He would say that the creation is groaning, waiting for what? The glory of God that is in us to be revealed. So, so there is this future hope that's coming right at us, but then there is this present reality that we can be filled with the glory of God Today, in our present lives, in this present world, you know, you might want to remember that it was only for a very brief period of time that Israel experienced the kind of blessing described here in chapter 35 and verses 8 and 9, this highway of holiness, this nation that was filled with goodness and grace. It was for just a very brief period of time. It was under the rule and reign of David's son Solomon. And you ought to read it sometime in 2 Kings. It is, it, is, it is stunning. It is beautiful. It was a time when war had ceased. That God's glory had come into the temple. The blessing of God was broadly upon the people. The nations were coming to Israel as promised. They were coming to meet this glorious God. They wanted to see what this God would have done for these people. We, we would say that it was the high water mark of Israel. It was the height. They were experiencing the covenant promises, the blessings, just as God said they would. But, much like in Eden, in Adam's sin, Solomon sins. And his heart is turned away. You, you, you see, it's not just a head knowledge, it's a heart knowledge. It's us coming before God and saying, we can experience this glorious God now if our hearts are not turned away. And when, when Solomon's heart is turned away, descriptors like gross idolatry, every kind of immorality, civil unrest begin to tell the story of Israel. And then, of course, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom is divided and hell comes and visits the people of God. And it's just such an incredibly sad story. And everything that Isaiah is writing about is a direct result of the sins of Solomon and his descendants. So, so we who believe that we can experience God's glory now, we might ask ourselves, well, what's going to make a difference in our lives? If we get serious about this business of not just a cognitive faith, but a heartfelt faith, can I keep my heart constantly beating for God? Will God be faithful to me as I seek to be faithful to him? And I would say we can have full confidence that the blessing that Isaiah foresees will not be lost again as we place our full confidence in the work of the Redeemer, the one who has redeemed our souls by paying the ransom. And just as Boaz redeemed Ruth, so 
Jesus Christ has redeemed us and let us live in the power of his redemption. The one who heads the new humanity, Jesus Christ, the new Adam, the one who took his right on our behalf, the one who died so that our sins would be forgiven. Through him, God is doing his work. And so let our hands be strengthened. And let our feeble knees be strengthened. Let our worry and fear and anxiety be cast upon the Lord. And let us get out of the course of the way the world is being lived. And let us live within the hope we find in passages like Isaiah 35. The warmth of the fellowship of God and Christ in congregational life. The constant reminder of our baptism. The meaning of the table. Hearts burning within us when we hear the word of God read and the word of God is open to us. This is what it means to have a heart faith and not just a head faith. Because we come to these things as the, redam- as the ransomed and the redeemed of Jesus Christ. And the question thing, do you know him in this way? Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? And not just things about Jesus Christ. But do you know him? Are you prepared to receive his table? Are you ready to engage in the fellowship? Allowing your life to be ordered with God at the center. And not other concerns that often drive their way in. So we're going to have some quiet prayer right now. And as we do, I would encourage you to prepare your own heart for the table of the Lord. And as we have received the gospel, to confess our sins. And soon we'll come and enjoy this foretaste of what will be ours indeed forever. Let's be quiet before the Lord in prayer. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.